for whatever reason, think that being nice is a strategic disadvantage. And I would argue the opposite. I would argue that if you're reasonably decent to other individuals you interact with, then you have a better footing for hard discussions. Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers, their inspiration, and their vision for the future of digital business. I'm your host, David Wright. The world of digital business is evolving faster than ever, and I want this to be a place where digital business champions create a village to band together and help each other navigate the ever-changing terrain. Disruptive Innovators features conversations with CIOs and digital leaders from around the world, diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. Good afternoon, friends. This is David Wright. I'm your host of Disruptive Innovators, Champions of Digital Business podcast. And this afternoon, I am joined by Dr. Lee David Milligan. Good afternoon, Lee. Good morning, David, from the West Coast. That's right. That's right. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on. Maybe to start, you could just tell me a little bit about your current role, where you are now, you know, 60 to 90 seconds. Yeah, happy to do so. So I serve as the chief information officer for a health system in Southern Oregon called Asante Health. It serves about nine counties. There's about 100,000 ER visits per year between three hospitals, about $1.1 billion a year in annual revenue. And we're really kind of a cornerstone of the community, largest employer of the community. And I've been here since 2000. I'm an ER doc by background, and I trained at UCLA in Los Angeles and then landed here right afterwards. So it was kind of quite a switch going from Los Angeles speed to Oregon speed, but it's been a beautiful thing. My wife and I have raised four kids here, all born at the same hospital, a flagship hospital here. And it's really a terrific community to live in. That's so great. We kind of redefined our mission you know, about six months ago, and obviously we want to have, we want to help health systems and other organizations reimagine what technology can do for their business, increase their competitiveness, but we also want to help them make a profound impact on the communities they serve. That's something that, you know, is very important to us. Transitively making our organization a part of something greater than just IT consulting. What's one piece of actionable advice that you'll look to give our listeners today? I think it's important that when you're on this journey that involves technology or healthcare or both, that occasionally you pause and do some self-reflection. Really try to understand internally where you bring it and where you have some holes. And it's important to get others to weigh in on that. I know that's an uncomfortable thing to do sometimes, to ask somebody to actually critique you. 
We live in a world where that isn't the norm. But if you have the right relationship with certain individuals who you know and trust, and you can ask them to weigh in on perhaps what's one thing I do really well, and what's one thing perhaps I should focus on, you'll get a list of stuff, both stuff you generate because you kind of know some of your weaknesses, as well as what others say, and then put in place a plan to shore up those areas. So the example I would give when I came into this role, I'm an ER doc by background. I've spent 12 years in technology, but I didn't grow up understanding, you know, kernels and deep server infrastructure and architecting. And so a lot of that stuff, including the network, server infrastructure, storage, compute, infosec, all these areas were areas that I really needed to hone. And so I've asked those teams to come and present to me. And I've done this for three years now. Every other month, a different team comes in and spends two hours presenting to me what they do and how they do it. And I get a chance to ask questions on that. And I've coupled that with my own additional learnings I've done outside of that. And that combination has proved to be powerful. Without it, I don't think I would be very effective in this role. Wow. I'm such a huge proponent of feedback. I took some leadership courses myself, and that was a huge, huge part of that. And I've created a committee around myself of people I trust that I can rely on for that feedback because I don't know what I don't know, right? So you, you mentioned that you started as an ER doctor. Where did you start and how did you kind of get to the place that you're at now? Yeah, my story is a little bit crazy. So hang on to your hat here. So when I graduated from high school, I'm going to go way back just briefly. I was not a very good student. I had a 2.0 GPA. I came out of high school and I landed in college. I was actually a pole vaulter. I was in college, pole vaulting, and then trying to figure out how to study. And I didn't know how to do it very effectively. And ultimately, I was kicked out of college after my first year. And I took some time off to work, just trying to figure out what to do. Took a few years off. And I had a variety of jobs. I worked as a bricklayer's assistant. I worked at The Gap for a while. I worked at Beacons Corporation lifting furniture. I worked in a law firm as the mail clerk and then eventually the purchasing agent. And then eventually I landed in a summer camp outside of San Diego called Camp Cuyamaca. And I had a terrific experience there with the kids at that camp. Half the summer was dedicated to kids with muscular dystrophy. And so when I was around them, I just had this amazing experience watching them navigate their world and move forward boldly despite their challenges. And it really inspired me. And I ultimately went back to school, actually went back to a community college first to kind of start with some basics to build my confidence, and ultimately transferred to the University of Utah, then ultimately entered medical school. So I did all that, did emergency medicine, and now I landed in Oregon after residency uh, in emergency medicine. And about 2008, I was having some conversations with my brother, Mark, who at the time was on the board of directors for Intermountain Healthcare. And we were talking through kind of what the future of healthcare looks like, particularly as it relates to IT. And you'll recall, this is right before Obamacare was launched and ACA and ARRA came out. And it was pretty clear to me that this big collision was about to happen between healthcare and IT. And it really, in my mind, it spelled opportunity, right? I knew there were going to be frustrated providers attempting to adopt this new stuff, this new technology. I know the technologists would be frustrated that the clinicians weren't just doing what they told them to do. And so I ended up going back to school, once again, to a community college to pursue computer science. And in the midst of that, our health system began the selection process for an EHR. We ultimately landed on Epic as our enterprise-wide EHR. And I got fairly deeply involved in that pretty quickly based on the trajectory I was already on. So 
one thing kind of led to another. I've had a series of building responsibilities. My predecessor did a very nice job of kind of bringing me along and kind of guiding me and adding things when I was ready for it. And so ultimately, I landed in my current position where I have a $50 million budget for OPEX, a $5 million CAPEX budget, and about 300 people who report up to me within the enterprise. I love that story about the muscular dystrophy. Obviously, not the fact that the children had muscular dystrophy, but that impacted you that way. You know, being of service in the world and in, to my family, to my community, in everything that we do is, is a huge part of my life. I actually, I read a book called The Go-Giver a number of years back. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's, it actually, I thought of it, you had posted about Gary Vee and he was kind of mentioning being not nice and how that can affect your business career and how the significance just being nice and being a, a good person can have on you know the trajectory. Not that that's the reason to do it, but... Yeah, I, that's a great point. I think there's a portion of folks in the industry who, for whatever reason, think that being nice is a strategic disadvantage. And I would argue the opposite. I would argue that if you're reasonably decent to other individuals you interact with, then you have a better footing for hard discussions that may ultimately... But if you're always cranky or always difficult, you have nothing to start with. And so um, I agree with your point. And circling back to the go-giver, there's five main distinctions he makes, just to, to throw this in there. Value, the true worth uh, being determined by how much more you give in value than you take in payment. Compensation determined by how many people you serve and how well you do so. Influence being how abundantly you place others' interests first before your own. And then authenticity and receptivity. Just a yeah, great piece. So, okay, so let's shift gears. What's one of the most important things you've learned in life? I mean, you've, you've already given some great insight, but you know, what was life before learning it and what was life after learning it? Wow, that's uh, it's philosophical, but I would say that it's super important to focus your energies on the people that matter to you in your life. And I would say that sometimes I talk about family and how really focus on your family. I would say that's fine as long as you define family broader than just blood. I think there's certain people you connect with in this world that for whatever reason, you're like family. You know, you can depend on one another. You reach out to one another. When things go the wrong direction, you can reach out to that person. I think it's super important to really recognize it. Don't be afraid to call it out. And then include them when you define family and focus your energies uh, appropriately. That would be kind of the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah, I love that. And is there one thing that you would wish you had known prior to beginning your career? I know another kind of philosophical question. When I switched gears, it was tough. I'll be very frank with you. It was tough. So, you know, I'm an ER doc. I didn't necessarily have a technology background. I'm trying to break into this space and pursue these board certifications and other certifications and really understand this space. And I recall, you know, we have four, my wife and I have four kids. And I recall going to Starbucks. There was a Starbucks that's embedded in Barnes and Noble. And so I would bring my kids there on Saturdays and Sundays, and I would park myself in the corner while I'm studying for hours and hours. And I would have them roaming around Barnes and Noble reading. I'm hoping that they're getting some, you know, education in this. And they'd come back and we would interact. That happened for years as I was making this transition. And so I would say that 
just kind of recognizing that anything you pursue, if you want to do it well, it takes a tremendous amount of effort and you have to be willing to put in that, that effort. It's so cool that you could still parlay that time to, to be with your children. I just had a daughter. She's 14 months old. Not quite reading on her own yet, but... <laughs> Won't be long. Getting into everything. We do read a book every night before bedtime. Yeah, she's the best. But it, it sounds like you, you really love your family, which just resonates with me. For sure. So what about as you were, you're going through this career, what was one of your, because I found that I've learned the most from my failures. Is there a time that you failed that sticks out in your mind? And if so, what did you learn from? Well, there's a lot of failures. <laughs> I'm, I'm, in my mind, I'm trying to like pick, okay, which one illustrates a point. There was a failure that, I, that was able to be turned around that I can tell you about. One of the realizations I had around technology is that it can be amazing and automated, or it can be really clunky and unusable. And as an ER doc, as I was making this transition, I was still working in the ER, but I was also programming Epic for our system. So I'm doing both at the same time. And I was working a shift as an ER doc. And you know, during your shifts, occasionally there's a code blue that's called within the hospital. It's a pretty big hospital, 400-bed hospital. There are code blues every day where somebody goes into cardiac arrest or stops breathing. So they call code blue overhead. And when that happens in our system, like most systems, the responding party is the ER doc, the ER nurse, and the ER tech who brings an airway bag that has special equipment in it. And so usually on a shift, a 10-hour shift, there'll be one, maybe two. But this particular day, I had five. I've never had that before. And it was an emotionally devastating day, frankly. At the end of the day, I was just completely wiped. Came home, had a glass of wine, went to bed, <laughs> said, I got to start fresh. The next day I had the day off, Got up, I'm in the shower, and I was thinking about this. We're on Epic, and all these patients who I saw, I really wanted to be able to dive in to not just do the normal responding stuff, which is CPR and intubate them and shock them, but really, is there a particular reason why they went into cardiac arrest that if we took action, we could reverse? And actually, within training, they call that the H's and T's because half of them start with H's, half start with T's. All that information was actually in Epic. But it was in different disparate locations. And so I came out of the shower, talked to my wife. She has much better handwriting than me. So I explained what I'm looking for. And she actually wireframed it out, basically drew it out on a piece of paper, what we were thinking at the time. And so then I went back and began building it out in Epic. It took me about a year to build it out in Epic. And ultimately, I called it Code Runner. And Epic eventually adopted it throughout their foundation system. So anywhere you're on Epic, you'll see Code Runner. But at the time, I was trying to get the end users to use it. And I assumed that if I built it and I thought it was a good idea, everybody would just use it. And nobody was using it. It was in Epic, available. Nobody would use it. And so I went to the doctors and I said, hey. And they said, oh, it's a great idea. Thank you. It's awesome. Didn't use it. So finally, I'm sitting there and my wife smartly said to me, well, within the workflow, who would you expect to bring this up? I said, well, nursing staff generally brings and prepares things. Docs arrive, they kind of work in concert. And so she said, you need to speak to the nursing staff. And so I ended up speaking to the nursing staff. They then incorporated it into their workflow. They actually have it on their checklist for the after action review. And once they did that, then it became standard within the system. So at the time, I made a number of false assumptions, but I learned some good lessons from it and that I'll take with me moving forward. That's really cool. It's awesome that Epic adopted that. I mean, I always say if you want to get something done, go find a nurse because 
they're just badass. That's right. And your wife also sounds like a force helping you wireframe stuff. I mean, that's pretty cool. Yeah, she's a PA. So we speak the same language and it's really great to have conversations with her and kind of talk through these things. She's really a co-creator with me on a lot of these things. That's very cool. So let's talk a little bit about Asante. What's your vision for the organization? The vision statement says to be your trusted health partner, every person, every time. And that was actually fairly new. We had a prior one in place, can't even recall it, frankly, that we switched over four years ago or so. And really, it was, it was designed to have us think more holistically about the patient and really stop calling them patients. These are people, and they may or may not be patients, but there's ways that we can partner with folks to help prevent badness from happening in the first place versus, in a reactionary matter, simply treat it once it happens. And so this kind of internal philosophical shift is happening within our organization where we really want to be that partner that helps you stay healthy. And if something bad does happen, we can be there as well. But we really want to start focusing on that prevention. So I would say, you know, moving forward, you're going to see a lot of very specific, tangible steps we're going to take to help prevent disease. That reminds me, it's akin to kind of your code blue platform or code runner, rather, looking to preempt things that transition to, to value-based care. So that being the case, what are some of the initiatives you guys are focused on right now? Well, we do have a number of kind of traditional medicine things happening for starters because our area is growing and we also draw from nine counties. So every year we turn away hundreds of potential transfers who we could care for effectively within our system. We know we deliver very high quality care as evidenced by multiple awards for various reasons. And so we want to deliver that care if we can. So two main things that are happening. Number one, on January 17th, we just launched two separate regional referral cancer centers. They're huge. And they're going to be able to care for patients in a beautiful, open, sunny environment that really helps facilitate healing versus what you might find in many places, which is kind of a dark, small, cramped environment. So it's really, it's really meant to be designed to facilitate healing. And we put great technology in there. The, I would argue it's the biggest health center for cancer care south of Portland and north of San Francisco with the best technology applied. So that's one thing. The second thing is we're in the process right now, right in the middle, frankly, of building a huge extension to our flagship hospital. It's going to add 350,000 square feet to uh, our flagship hospital. It's going to double the number of ORs and vascular suites. And we're putting some fantastic technology in there as well. Stuff like real-time location services, RTLS, where you can track all of your medical devices. And the efficiency associated with knowing where something is, is huge. Second, we can track patients. So now we, instead of having the nurse have to manually input the patient went to the OR, patient went to the endoscopy suite, patient went to CT, it will automatically happen and flow into Epic. And then lastly, we can track our own workflows and identify through spaghetti diagrams, gosh, how efficient are our workflows? So that's just one example of kind of cool technology we're putting in there. On the preventive front, we have stood up our own ACO, Accountable Care Organization, called the Asante Health Network. And we've already begun partnering with local businesses to provide healthcare services, both reactionary and preventive, to their staff. We have three contracts already going. Plus, on top of that, we're self-insured. So 6,400 employees 
are self-insured. And so we take that very seriously. It's a responsibility. And that's part of our plan as well. Very cool. So what are some of the, the challenges you guys are facing right now? Biggest challenges? I would say that in a world with unlimited desires and finite resources, prioritization. Trying to get prioritization crisp is such a challenge because any of these ideas that come across, they're all good ideas. Hardly any, well, maybe one or two are bad, but almost all of them are good ideas on their own merit. But then you got to say, okay, I've got 400 parking spaces. I got a thousand cars. Which cars am I going to park and when? And so within IT, we've worked really hard to categorize our work into three portfolios. The first is what what I'll call the business portfolio. That is, we have a number of committees that help govern the technology work that we do. They're advisory committees. So a physician advisory committee, PAC, nursing advisory committee, NAC, a pharmacist, PharmAct, and they create top 10 lists. And those all fit into that business portfolio. The next is ITS portfolio. And that's stuff that nobody's asking for, but we have to do. So that's you know spinning up servers, that's server migrations, that's patching, upgrades. It's all kinds of stuff that we really should do. But if we don't call it out as a special specific bucket, people will assume that we have added capacity that we don't have. And then the third bucket is our strategic bucket. So uh, strategic capital projects get hard rank prioritized, and we work it from that bucket. So our teams individually try to assign a percentage of their time they will spend on each bucket month over month, and then track it to see how closely we, we came to that. I love those buckets. That's fantastic. And I also, the advisory committees are huge too. We're working with a health system in New Jersey right now, and we're, we're needing to kind of assemble that advisory board. I mean, it also goes back to what you said before. We're going to need those, those doctors, those nurses, those users enrolled and, and excited about the technology in order for the, the projects to be effective. Exactly. Perfectly said. So we take a lot of time and care and organizational change management and kind of, and also those folks typically have that, the vision for what that future state could look like, right? Maybe they don't know exactly what technology would be necessary to fulfill it, but they usually have a good idea about the the strategy and kind of the direction of things. Very cool. I mean, I love the buckets. Are there any other best practices that you're really keen on that you, that you might want to share with folks? Yeah. I mean, one I think worth sharing is this whole concept of becoming the evolving journey to become a high reliability organization. So if, as you think about the nuclear plants or the power grid or airlines, these are industries that they can't fail. They just absolutely have to have multiple redundancies built into their workflows and processes so that failure really isn't an option. And within our space, we haven't always paralleled with that. Let's put it that way. Three years ago, looked at our unplanned downtimes of our critical systems, and we were about two times our benchmark. In other words, we were having way too many unplanned downtimes. We've worked very hard as a team to identify the root cause associated with that and to put in place workflows and redundancies to prevent that. And I'm happy to report that right now, we're currently at 119 days since our last unplanned downtime of a critical system. And that, for us, is almost a record. Wow. Congratulations. That's huge. So I, I love what you guys are doing with the real-time location services and, and the medical devices. Are there any other 
innovative technologies that you're leveraging to support the business vision that, of the organization that you're really excited about or that you might want to share or on the roadmap? Yeah, I would say that technology is part of everything nowadays, from the telephone system to secure messaging to electronic medical record to e-prescribing. Almost everything has a technology piece to it. And so, you know, our job is really to understand what is the operational, clinical, and strategic direction the organization is attempting to go, and then how can we propose creatively options for how to best scale and augment the operational initiatives. And so we're looking at a number of initiatives around our digital front door to even augmenting our our, uh, telehealth scenario. I love that. All right. So this is another kind of broader question, but in regard to the healthcare industry in general, where do you see the, the industry going and what do you think will be the biggest changes as time passes? I think bar none, the biggest game changer is going to be procedural telehealth. There's companies like Proximy out of the UK that are putting video feeds in ORA and shooting that to any place in the world so that a surgeon A can talk to surgeon B and in real time provide guidance. They also are putting together a repository, a library, if you will, of cases tagged with metadata so that it's searchable. Really amazing stuff in this space. Think about how this will potentially improve the efficiency of just trying to get credentialed to do a new procedure. Right now, a surgeon has to go someplace and watch it 10 times then that individual has to be proctored 10 times before they can actually do it. With procedural telehealth, that entire thing can happen without any travel at all. Plus, it's just amazing conceptually to have a coach who can help coach you through something as you're doing it for the first time or second time. And they're adding all kinds of cool stuff to it in terms of being able to manipulate the images, et cetera. So I think that, honestly, I think five years from now, 95% of the world will have ORs that are procedurally telehealth enabled. Yeah, that's awesome and agreed. I mean, it's great that as a system, you guys are are adopting this because, I mean, obviously, or not obviously, but health systems used to be the classic late adopters. It was like, you know, let's keep the lights on. Let's make sure everything works. But now you have new competitors coming into the market, more outpatient-based kind of ambulatory organizations, new delivery modes of care. It sounds like you guys are really ahead of the curve, which is good to hear. Yeah, the procedural telehealth, that's going to be a journey across the globe, in my opinion. We haven't adopted it yet here within our system, but we're doing a number of things to lay the groundwork, I would say. Very cool. That is a, a big opportunity. So we're almost wrapped up here. A couple questions. What's your favorite book or blog right now? Favorite blog, I would say, is right now with Bill Russell, This Week in Health IT. I would say he does a terrific job of bringing together a number of folks from around the industry to weigh in on different scenarios. I'm defining blog very broadly. And then in terms of favorite book, uh, there's a lot to choose from. I would say Shawshank. Nice. That's awesome. Okay. And last question. If you could go back in time, five or 10 years, what advice would you give your younger self? Besides buy Amazon stock? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't think I'd change a thing. You know, my life was, it was a bit rocky, but in those challenging times, I learned a lot, particularly around 
how to connect with people who may not always be in the best space. And so I don't think there's any replacement for that. And I, I leverage those lessons every day. So as strange as it sounds, I wouldn't change anything. First off, the, the Amazon answer is one of the best answers I've ever gotten that question. But I get that. I totally identify with that. So, well, Dr. Milligan Lee, it has been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for taking the time. Best wishes in all your future endeavors. Thank you. Let me know if I could ever do anything to be of service, David. Very good to meet you. You too. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.